0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for what is hopefully another hour of podcasting greatness, but we will see. I have been... um, I'm just going to be really straight and honest with you guys that this has been a very difficult subject for me to uh, open up, breach, talk about, get into. Um, I mean, not that I hasn't talked about it before, though, so it's a little weird. (laughs) Um, I have... um you know, you guys have been watching my channel or my podcast. If you're familiar with my work, you know that I have been recovering from my experiences with the Church of Scientology, which was a lifelong commitment and, and, and endeavor that I was involved with for decades. And, you know, sometimes after being out for as long as I've been out and doing as much talking as I've done about it and doing as much research as I've done on it and, and you know, writing a book on it and all of this, I mean, all this stuff I've, uh, I've done— You'd think I'd be over it by now, and in a great many ways, I am. In a great many ways, I am. Personally, I've, I've recovered from a, from a number of traumas and, and, and bad things connected with Scientology and sort of shed a lot of its nonsense out of my thinking and out of my world. And those are all very, very good things. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm not I'm not at all complaining or, or, or saying anything bad here. I'm just saying that, you know, after all these years, I, you know, why am I still talking about this stuff at all? Well, I, I am because there are still reasons beyond me and my own head to be talking about destructive cults, to be talking about Scientology, to be talking about the Moonies, to be talking about... Um, you know, the the 12 tribes or the children of God or the Mormons, you know, the Latter-day Saints or all these other groups, which are really destructive cults in one guise or another. And I, at this point, my effort is not really so much about my own catharsis, although I am still experiencing that and I'm still trying to get over some things, um, and in fact, that's been one of the difficulties in, 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 in talking about this thing that we're going to talk about here in this show, which is the cult wars, the, the, the academic um, struggle or effort on the part of, of, of a lot of academics, especially in the area of religious studies and sociology, to whitewash cults. To talk about them as though they are valid, legitimate operations, to talk about them as though they are credible, um, yeah, legitimate groups, right? And, um, and this goes back, me, me actually addressing this is something I addressed in my book. Um, you know, I wrote this book, I got visual aids today, and this is a podcast. So uh, for you guys who are only listening and not watching on YouTube, <laughs> um, I can't show you these things, but you know, I have for on video here, you can see I wrote this book. And this is Scientology A to Zenu, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about. And I put this out at the end of 2015. And chapter two of the book um, addresses the, the, the concept or the subject of apostasy or apostates, okay? And, um, and I wanted to review that with you first because I'm going to get into some academic work here. I've actually got a couple papers that are peer-reviewed published papers that, uh, that we're going to talk about on this topic, Because this is very likely, uh, in the way that I'm sort of thinking about things right now, this is very likely going to be an avenue of of work for me uh, into the future. Because as I'm going to lay out for you in the show here, and, and I might fumble my way through this, this is not a super well-organized <laughs> activity right now, but, as I, but I think that this is going to be the first of what will probably be a number of times, that I'm going to end up talking about this in, in one way or another. And I don't want to start off with the idea that this is some ivory tower, only happens in universities, this is only something that, you know, master's students or PhD candidates Need to worry about. I want to connect some dots here, and I want to um, I want to connect them to real life and to the real world and the. The consequences of what goes on in academia is important. Okay, so what I wanted to do uh, first off is I wanted to sort of talk about apostates and get, kind of clear up what this concept is, because it's an important one. And it is it is uh, one of the key things, it's, uh, that word is actually one of the key things that Scientology uses and other destructive cults use, as I listed out earlier, who... Um, who use these arguments that come out of academia in courtrooms, in the media, as well as in their uh, criticisms and attacks against uh, former members, apostates. They use this word, and they use it in a in a, in a pejorative, you know, almost insulting way. Uh, so what is this word about? Well, I wrote about it in my book, and I said um, the word— Uh, apostate, the word chosen by the Church of Scientology to refer to any ex-member critical of it is apostate. It's an odd word, not something you'll hear thrown around in a normal conversation at the bar or even in a regular classroom. Scientology repeatedly refers to former high-ranking members who speak out as bitter, defrocked apostates on the fringes of the internet as a way to cast them in a negative light. If you were to consult a dictionary, you would find apostate comes from apostasy, which means renunciation of a religious faith. Delve more deeply into its derivation and you get to the Greek root apostasia, meaning a defection or revolt. Now, here is the problem. Uh, Here is a quote from Lonnie D. Cliver, Professor of Religious Studies at Southern Methodist University, which he wrote in January of 1995. And this quote reflects the current thinking of a great number of religious scholars and sociologists still to this day, which is why I'm doing this podcast. Quote, the apostate must always be regarded as an individual who is predisposed to render a biased account of the religious beliefs and practices of his or her former religious associations and activities. There is no denying that these dedicated and die hard opponents of the new religions present a distorted view of the new religions to the public, the academy, and the courts by virtue of their ready availability and eagerness to testify against their former religious associations and activities. Such apostates always act out of a scenario that vindicates themselves by shifting responsibility for their actions to the religious group. Interesting that he wrote that. It's a completely uh, blame-the-victim approach. And uh, it actually gets worse than this quote, which I will show you in a few moments. Um, But I wanted to say, as I write in my book here, that I have and always will take responsibility for my own actions as a Scientologist. I am responsible for what I did in Scientology. There is no question about it. But I am not responsible for all the things that were done to me as a Scientologist. And uh, what this professor and what others have failed to take into account to an almost, well, not even almost, to a grossly insulting level is they believe that we are all, as a group, always, you'll notice the words that I use there, always unreliable, always not to be listened to. And for more on this, and in fact, what we're going to talk about in this podcast is sort of the history of this. Why do they think this way? Where did this idea come from? Why are we are uh, us ex members routinely ignored? And it actually insulted and derided for our efforts to expose the abuses that happen in the groups that we were part of. Why does academia ignore us? Why do they push back so hard? Why do these guys go into courtrooms and testify on behalf of the Moonies, on behalf of the Church of Scientology, against us former members when we are trying to gain some degree of justice or restitution for the wrongs that were committed against us? Why do these people feel they need to be shields to protect groups like Scientology? What is this all about? Well, I have two papers here that are uh, wonderful academic works uh, which break this all down. And I'm going to walk through some points here uh, from these. One of these uh, was written by um, Stephen Kent and Kayla Swanson from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada and this is the history of credibility attacks against former cult members this is a a wonderful work this was published in the international Journal of cultic studies in um 2017 okay and the other paper that I am have that I have here and I'm gonna uh, leave uh if I can't get uh, links to these papers, Um, because they might be behind paywalls, I am going to at least post the titles of them and the authors uh, in the description to this podcast so you guys can look these up if you can uh, have access to them. This one is more recently posted. This is, in fact, posted this year, uh, a paper out of Ryerson University by a man named Michael Thorne called Seeing Apostates Clearly, Reconsidering... The Legitimacy of Ex-Member Testimony in Documentary Representations of Scientology. Yeah. This guy uh, actually took the uh, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, Going Clear, the Going Clear documentary and book, and Inside Scientology by Janet Reitman, and he uh, broke down why it is that the apostate testimony, the former member testimony in those documentaries and books, should be uh, listened to. Uh, And he makes a whole argument for it, right? In fact, he says, acknowledging, this is 2021, he says, uh, (sighs) the popular reviews of these books, Inside Scientology and Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, except the negative te- testimony whereas the scholarly reviews follow a long standing tendency in sociology and religious studies to distrust such testimony as unprovable allegations from disgruntled apostates overly hostile toward their former religions but just because many ex members of controversial religious movements may be biased disgruntled and hostile That does not mean their stories are illegitimate. Using Scientology exposés and the debate surrounding them as a case study, we can see that considering ex-member testimony as disputed but productive discourse, documentary, and journalistic representations of controversial new religions can operate as important sources of information, helping us better map a larger discursive domain wherein allegations of harm intermix with claims of benefit in remarkably complicated ways. All right, so all of that, of course, being academic pros for, hey, let's listen to both sides. Maybe we'll get some very interesting and complicated discussions going as a result of that instead of just pimping for for these organizations and listening uncritically to their propaganda and repeating the lines and testimony of current members as though that's the delivered truth while we completely ignore all of these ex-members. That is the current situation. Okay, so how did all, how did this all begin? Well, let's go ahead and break it down. So we have here this paper from Stephen Kent, and he says, first off in the abstract, um, the wholesale rejection of apostates information became the dominant academic position among important sociologists of religion. By the early 1990s, the grand figure of sectarian studies, in other words, people who study sex and cults, Brian R. Wilson, that's his name, we are going to name names in this podcast, and Brian R. Willis, Wilson is one is the chief offender. Call, he called for objective researchers and the courts to avoid apostates entirely because their atrocity accounts supposedly were self-serving and embellished. Having tested Wilson's dismissive assertions, however, against two important court cases that pitted apostates against group members, we found that most of the apostates' information was credible, while current members often lied." A balanced approach to apostasy, therefore, calls for academics to to examine closely both apostate and current member claims, realizing that bias and accuracy can appear in either. And I want to take this opportunity, this moment to say out loud and even, uh, you know, uh, not, not proudly, but certainly out loud that I am coming at this from a biased point of view and I have never Ever claimed otherwise. I am being more honest with you in saying that and admitting that to you right out in the open at the beginning than any of these Brian Wilson types who claim to come at this from a position of objectivity. They do not and will not acknowledge or recognize their own bias in being pro-cult. And that's a problem. That is a huge problem if you're going to claim to objectively study something as contentious as religion. Okay, especially when you're going to talk about abusive religious groups or go so far as to claim objectivity while uh, dismissing claims of abuse or outright ignoring them. Um, The researcher's refusal was not one of degree, of doubting some or even most of the information these former members could have provided. Get this, a body of academics simply refused to receive or use any information from them. Beginning in the last years of the 1970s, therefore, some major sociological studies on sectarian groups likely suffered from the exclusion of insights from people whose knowledge was firsthand. Right. And so from the 1970s forward, we've had this movement in academia and religious studies and sociology of not listening to any of the negative. Right. In other words, taking critical thinking and dumping it in the trash. And that's been the state of cult studies, of cultic studies, sectarian studies for the last 50, 40, 45 years not objective, not unbiased, not reasonable and not critical and not using good critical thinking. That is the problem. And it's a huge problem for people like me who are trying to push back. Now in popular conversation and in the in the mainstream media, cults are destructive cults like Scientology are properly positioned as high control abusive groups because us former members, get listened to by the popular press. And in fact, this is the number one reason why we go to the media in the first place is because they listen to us and they repeat and tell our stories. And we, therefore, are raising awareness with the public at large and and getting these groups to stop being so abusive. If we only listen to the academics and what they had to say about these groups— and the and the popular press and media ignored us the way academia does, then believe me, please, when I tell you that groups like 12 Tribes, Church of Scientology, Children of God, etc., uh, would be running even more rampant over people's civil and human rights on a daily basis, and they would be gouging more and more people out of more and more of their money and their time and their labor than they already get away with. And they already get away with way too much. So, So academia has really been falling behind in their job on this. Um, and I mean specifically, of course, religious studies and sociology. I am not talking about psychiatry or psychology. Now, there's a lot of problems with psychology and psychiatry, but this isn't one of them. Psychologists listen to us, right? Us X members. When I say us, I'm referring in a body to X members. I don't sit here and pretend to speak for all X members as far as what they have to say. But I do speak for all X members in saying that they have a right to be heard, That somebody should listen to them, and that they that their stories should be taken seriously. And if there are a small percentage of people in the ex member world who are telling atrocity tales, and there are, and if there are professional victims who hold on to their trauma and don't get therapy and don't get help and just use those stories in order to make money, get you know become famous, whatever, get credibility. Uh, not credibility, but notoriety, I should say. If if that's the effort, and it is the effort on a part of a very small number of people, well, fine. We should acknowledge that, and we should classify that accordingly. But to take that small group of people and say every X member fits that bill—that's ludicrous. Okay, so why did this happen? Well, it was a couple reasons. First off, um, you have this guy. Um, brian wilson right who stated categorically that former member accounts were untrustworthy and on those grounds neither objective researchers nor courts should accept former member testimony so who the hell is brian wilson well he actually has a wikipedia page all about him now he's dead now okay brian r wilson is dead he's been dead since october 2004 But he did all of his damage in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, He was a uh, reader emeritus in sociology at the University of Oxford and was president of the International Society for the Sociology of Religion. And he was an author. He wrote several influential books on new religious movements. And um, that's who Brian R. Wilson was. He was a thought leader in the field of religious studies and in the field of sociology, and the sociology specifically of sex, sectarian studies, cults. So uh, you know, fringe religious movements, new religious movements, as they came to call them. So, um, so this was a man who was interested in studying this stuff. Nothing wrong with that, but then. I uh, ran into, apparently, a few—you know, the, the the 1970s is when the Moonies and Scientology really started kind of coming into the popular press as something wrong with these groups. These are abusive groups. And people like Brian Wilson thought that their job as sociologists, as scholars who were above it all— was to be defenders of these faiths, because here they are being unfairly tarnished and, and tainted by these sensationalistic stories in the media, and somebody has to push back against this nonsense and speak up for these poor groups who are not being fairly represented. This was the view of Brian Wilson and, and some of these other sociologists and religious studies scholars. So... Um, he then started this idea that apostates, that, that w- on which these media stories were based, and, and here we're talking about people like Steve Hassan who has since gone on to become an academic himself, he's now a doctor, and, um, and has been pushing back on this stuff himself since then, uh, but he was one of the people who was speaking out then about these groups and saying, hey, you know what, I almost got killed working for the Moonies, and they engaged in a program of thought reform against me, wore me out, Uh, sleep deprived me, food deprived me, relationship deprived me, fed me this bunch of lies and nonsense that they called religious dogma, and then basically used me for slave labor until I almost, you know, died falling asleep behind the wheel of a car. This is, this is, this is Steve Hassan's story. So he tells this story and people like Brian Wilson look at him and say, nah, nah, you just have an ax to grind. You're, you, I, no, not going to listen to a word you have to say about this, uh, because you're just trying to tarnish the good name of Sun, Young, Moon, <laughs> and the Moonies. That's what you're doing. Now, here's the problem, is that Brian Wilson then published prolifically on this topic Now, this is all pre-internet, so the only real work that anybody in academia had to fall on to look to as to studying these groups or trying to figure out what this is all about was the work of people like Brian R. Wilson, who was saying, these apostates, they're unreliable, untrustworthy, and we are not going to listen to them. And unfortunately, in academia, like any other human group— thought leaders exist, and they have influence, and they have power, and they, they generate power to the degree that people are listening to them and citing their papers. In other words, linking to their work, okay? And so this is how academia has has worked for, for many, many years. So Brian Wilson published lots and lots and lots of papers, and uh, he and he managed to, by doing that, influence the thinking and writing of everybody else who got into the field that's how it works and uh and so uh, we had this problem this this sort of problematic approach to um uh, to apostasy into these these groups to cults Okay, now fumbling my way through this here, I'm looking at other highlighted bits of the history of this. So we get Brian Wilson starting this back in the 1970s. Um, We move forward a little bit and we get various uh, breakdowns of what an apostate is and how it was defined and who are these guys. For example, here we have, an apostate, according to a guy named Scheller, who uh, wrote in 19, back in uh, 1961, an apostate is a former member who is out for revenge, out to damage the group to which he once belonged. Um, among sociologists, uh, let's see here. Oh, yes. Here's how things kind of went a bit nuts. Okay? Um, And this is where the—unfortunately, this is where some of the religious studies and sociology guys, um, some of their words and some of their arguments gained traction because, okay, in the 1980s (laughs) and then in the late 70s and 80s, in response to— this public media about you know these cults and 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 former members going oh my god these were abusive groups deprogramming started and this was just not not a good thing In North America and throughout the Western world, cults tore into public awareness in the early 1970s with groups such as the Hare Krishnas, the Tony and Susan, the Lamo Foundation, the Children of God, and the Unification Church attracting hundreds and, in some cases, thousands of young converts. Certainly, controversial groups such as Scientology existed before this time, but the early 1970s saw numerous spiritual and other ideological claimants attracting youth who had grown alienated from a range of social societal values. Okay, so in other words, 1970s saw a rise in alternative religions and alternative social groups. Uh, because young people were flooding into them, because the sixties and seventies were incredibly tumultuous times, and um, and these these groups and these group leaders were offering solutions to a troubled and confusing world, and people, were, young people uh, who didn't have any real world experience or knowledge, and certainly nothing from uh, academia to help them uh, fit right, you know, fell into the clutches of these groups. And so, as a result of that, what happened was um, deprogramming started and a guy named Ted Patrick and others uh, started working as cult interventionists and they were unfortunately engaged in some illegal activities of their own. They um, went extreme to solve an extreme problem and they engaged in the same kind of nonsensical activities that the cults engage in, uh, in their deprogramming efforts. They would override a person's uh, power of choice or personal preference or identity and associations uh, in order to try to tear them out of the cults. They would kidnap them, in other words, throw them in the back of a van, take them to a hotel, trick them, lie to them, do various things to them in order to cajole them or convince them to get out of the cultic situation they were in. This was not a good approach, but this was the approach that was used. It was forceful, it was uh, overpowering, and it was wrong. And uh, I just don't know any other words to use to describe that time, but it gave the people like Brian R. Wilson lots of ammunition to use in their pushback against apostates, against former members, because they go, look, look what they do. Look what they get up to! Look at this nonsense, right? Look, they're they're committing crimes. They're they're violating these people's human and civil rights. They're doing what they say the cults do, right? And to the to the degree that they were pointing out actual incidents of actual criminal activity during deprogramming, they were right. During those times, in those cases, under those conditions and contexts, that was wrong, right? They shouldn't have done that. The the, the deprogrammers, they shouldn't have been doing that work. Not that way. We had to kind of learn (laughs) that that's not how to do it. And uh, those deprogrammers had a success rate of only about 50%. So it was a real coin toss, literally, as to whether they were going to work or not in getting somebody out of a cult. But it was the only thing anybody was doing to try to actually help these people get out of these abusive circumstances. And um, so good intent you know, not so good action, right? Really not. And not excusable, not justifiable in any way. So don't take, you know, don't don't think that, dis, you know, dis, they had good intentions. Well, I don't care. It was still the wrong thing to do. But they didn't really know how else to approach it. And again, the religious studies guys were not particularly helping with this. Psychologists and psychiatrists, by the way, tend to be on the side of the former members because they do understand how traumatizing and abusive these groups are and they do believe the victims and uh, that's been the case for decades now. So I'm not talking in the in the main about the fields of psychology or psychiatry when it comes to uh, this particular issue or problem, but this deprogramming thing was a real problem. Um, Okay. Now, however, there's a couple other actors in here that we're going to bring in, and this is David Bromley, and this guy's still around. I've actually written uh, and made videos directly attacking this guy's work. Um, so, if you want to see that, you can look back in my in my uh, playlist on the book Scientology. Uh, which was edited by James R. Lewis, who is another one of these these guys we're going to talk about. But David Bromley is a professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University in Virginia. And he specializes in the sociology of religion and the academic study of new religious movements. And he's written extensively about cults, new religious movements, apostasy, and the anti-cult movement. Yeah, what David Bromley has written is a bunch of apologia four cults he has flat out gone to bat for these guys and um set up uh oh was it bromley who did this his primary area of teaching and research is the sociology of religion and yeah here we go uh let's see yeah, he's broken down things about apostasy based on the notion of allegiance. Uh, those who leave allegiant groups are defectors, blah, 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 blah. So basically, they're, the way they think about this and the way they look at it is that um, within the academic study of new religious movements, Bromley has been described as somewhat sympathetic of groups labeled as cults. <laughs> Um, Bromley has expressed opposition to the claims of brainwashing and the practice of deprogramming. Bromley compared these social conflicts to witch hunts of the late Middle Ages and has claimed that civil liberties guaranteeing religious freedom were threatened. He has criticized the tactics of anti-cultists and their claims over brainwashing in several books and articles co-authored with Anson Shoup our next name to bring into this, okay? So we have Bromley and we have um, Shoup, okay? So Bromley uh, is, or sorry, Anson Shoup is dead. He died in 2015. He was an American sociologist and he worked closely with David Bromley. And in fact, Anson Shoup's work has also been criticized by me earlier. Uh, an advocate for religious freedom, Shoup conducted field work, field work on the Unification Church and other new religious movements, as well as their opponents. Shoup was considered one of the foremost social science authorities on the anti cult movement, based on a series of books and articles on the topic he co authored with Bromley. Okay, so Shoup and Bromley have been carrying the torch that uh, Brian R. Wilson lit in the 1970s. And the point of these guys being as prolific as they are cannot be uh, overstated. It's very, very important. If you do a Google search, you're going to get shown What is the majority, you know, what is most looked at, most talked about first? That's what comes to the top of the list. It's always been that way with search engines and indexing, and it's the same way in academia. The people who write the most, talk the most, speak the most about a thing are the ones who are going to be heard the most. And Bromley and Shoup were prolific, as was Brian R. Wilson. So these guys kind of dominated the field through their publications, and then the internet came along, because these guys were, were starting this stuff back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. The internet comes along and all their work gets put in there. And this is still when new students to religious studies or sociology get, you know, go do library searches or looks or literary reviews, literature reviews, rather, of, um, of cults. These guys are the names that come up all the time. And this is how and why it is that um, court-appointed expert testimony on on benefiting the cults and um, papers that get published benefiting the cults and uh, books that get published benefiting the cults all come from these guys. And so um, my effort with this podcast and with work I'll be doing into the future is going to be to push back on that and I'm going to have to be a little prolific about it because I'm pushing back against decades of cult apologists okay Uh, all right so uh and and get this now according to Stephen Kent's um work here according to his paper um Shoup and Bromley's disbelief in apostates accounts already had appeared in scholarship the year before they commented specifically on deprogramming. So it wasn't, deprogramming wasn't the only thing that justified this counter um, apostate pro-cult view. They were already on that role then the deprogramming thing happened and that just gave them more ammunition. But 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 realize that it that the deprogramming thing wasn't the cause of Bromley and Shoop and Wilson pushing back against us horrible, awful apostates. Okay. That just helped them out. Uh, And in fact, um, uh, Stephen Kent here does a great job of pushing back on their pushback. So anyway, he kind of calls them on the carpet for this. Um, Yeah. Historical fact lost out to sociological generalization as sociologists dismissed atrocity tales as possible sources of information about sectarian life. In other words... Not listening to what you have to say. Uh, And this was also, by the way, applied backwards to old accounts of apostates, too. Going back to even the Mormons, where you had stories uh, from ex-members or troubled current members who were speaking critically about what was going on in their life. And these sociologists and religious studies guys would just dismiss that, too. So, uh, so you have twisted, corrupted accounts of Mormon history in academic literature simply because these academics won't listen to um, what these people have to say. And this has excused such things as outright violence and even murder. I mean, it gets bad how far some of these uh, academics will go to justify um, cult behavior. Uh, and so here we come to James R. Lewis, right, who uh, is a philosophy professor at, get this, Wuhan University. He's an American who is teaching in China now. He's an academic scholar of religious studies, sociologist of religion, and writer specializing in the academic study of new religious movements. Uh, so you can look up James R. Lewis online. Um Now, this guy in 1992, get this, he went so far as to form an academic association called AWARE, A-W-A-R-E, with the primary goal, quote, to promote intellectual and religious freedom by educating the general public about existing religions and cultures, including but not limited to alternative religious groups, end quote. Describing its outlook as scholarly and non-sectarian, Aware stated that it sought to educate scholars and the general public about the persecution of religious and cultural minorities in the United States and abroad and to assist the United States in its efforts to counter prejudice. Other scholars involved in the formulation of AWARE as an anti-anti-cult movement, or sorry, organization, quote-unquote, included Eileen Barker, David Bromley, and Jeffrey Hayden, more names, who felt a need for an organization of academics prepared to appear, get this, prepared to appear as expert witnesses in court cases. AWARE proved controversial no shit. Critics complained that Lewis associated too closely with NRM members, new religious movement members, cultists, in other words, and Lewis dissolved the body in December 1995 after con- concern from members of its advisory board. Okay, now get this. I'm just going to read this to you because it's the quickest way to give you this information. I've talked about this before. Um Some months prior, in May 1995, and this is where Lewis and another guy named Gordon Melton lost all credibility as far as I'm concerned. Get this, in May 1995, Lewis and fellow scholar Gordon Melton and religious freedom lawyer Barry Fisher had flown to Japan in the early stages of investigations into the sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway to voice their concern that police behavior, including mass detentions without charge and the removal of practitioners' children from the group might be infringing the civil rights of Aum Shinrikyo members. Okay, now Aum Shinrikyo was a Japanese cult. And in 1995, Am Shinrikyo attempted to mass murder hundreds of thousands of people in one go with sarin gas in the Tokyo metro subway system. And they got caught. And they didn't end up killing hundreds of thousands of people. They killed, uh, I think, just a few, or there uh, was—I think they they screwed it up and ended up— only killing a few people before they got busted, something, something. I don't remember exactly what happened there, but they had traveled to Japan. These guys, Gordon Melton and Lewis, traveled to Japan at the invitation and expense of Aum Shinrikyo, they paid for them to go, after they contacted the group to express concern over developments and met with officials over a period of three days. While not having been given access to the group's chemical laboratories, yeah, they had chemical laboratories, they held a press conference. They held press conferences in Japan stating their belief, based on the documentation they had been given by the group, that Aum Shinrikyo did not have the ability to produce sarin and was being scapegoated. Lewis likened the group's treatment to a Japanese Waco the scholars' defense of Am led to a crisis of confidence in religious scholarship when the group turned out to have been responsible for the attack after all. Oops. Imagine traveling to Jonestown days before, actually, actually the day after uh, the massacre of all of those people and saying... Well, there's no way that Jim Jones could have ordered this. There's no way that they could have poisoned all these people. That's impossible. These documents show that they just don't believe that and would never do that. That's what these guys went and did with Am Shinrikyo. And they ended up with, uh, you know, uh, bullets in their feet and pie all over their face because they were completely, totally and 100% absolutely wrong. Uh, they they could not get over there fast enough to defend this uh, destructive cult that had tried to mass murder. okay, let's let's really keep this in perspective. Here's a group that was led by a Japanese madman, a complete psychotic. He ran a religion, quote unquote, called Om Shinrikyo. He gathered followers, they built chemical labs. They created sarin gas with the premeditated intent, to kill non-believers. They executed this plan in an effort to do that, and they failed, and they got caught. And these two idiots rushed over there with their religious freedom lawyer and held press conferences saying there is no way that could have happened. Absolutely not. We put our professional credibility on the line that these guys absolutely are just being persecuted, and this is a Japanese Waco. Okay, I think you see where all that goes. Um, Okay, so uh, just kind of looking through some of my other highlights here, we finally see a little bit of academic pushback on this starting um, in the 80s. But um, basically, these guys just made a conscientious decision to ignore the abuses, the atrocities, the violence, and the civil rights and human rights violations that these groups engage in, and um, and I just don't know any other way to describe that except to say that these is a body of academics whose head is heads are so buried in the sand that they just refuse to and can't even apparently see. Um, one, that their heads are buried in the sand, or two, that the groups that they are working so hard to defend are, in fact, destructive. Um, There are other lies and other things I could talk about with these guys. I mean, James R. Lewis uh, falsely claimed a Ph.D. before he actually had one, stuff like that. But I don't really, you know, I'm naming their names so you guys will know who they are, but I'm not doing this in an effort to do this great, big, huge ad hominem it's not the people involved that are so important. It's the arguments that they're making and the effects that those arguments have had on academia and on the public at large, the court system, really, the justice system more so than the public at large that I am most concerned about with this, okay? Because it's very, very difficult to, for us, former members to um, get the justice we deserve, (laughs) basically, right? Uh, And in fact, here's one of the problems here is that Scientology has used the logic in Wilson's, Brian Wilson's anti-apostate position to discredit former member critics. Um, Recently, for example, lodging a successful complaint to Britain's press standards organization against England's Mail Online for an article about the supposed bromance between actor Tom Cruise and Scientology leader David Miscavige. One of the arguments that Miscavige used in his complaint was that the newspaper, quote, had relied on sources who were disaffected former members with no knowledge of the church's operations. Okay, so uh, you can guarantee, by the way, that when Scientology says stuff like that, they are lying. Um, and specifically, Scientology has taken this whole bitter, defrocked apostates line that, that you know from Bromley, and they have used it and run with it. And they have successfully argued in court against former members using this academic testimony, making it harder for traumatized and abused victims to get their day in court and get their justice that they deserve. And this goes all the way up to now. This is not the distant past. This is right in the here and now. So that's why I am talking about this and trying to um, push back on it, okay, and inform you guys about what's going on. Okay, so that all being said, um... I wanted to end this by sort of repeating uh, an analogy I made in writing last week on Tony Ortega's blog, and one that I will probably continue making because I think it's important and one that needs to be said. Um, these guys are, are, are classifying groups like Scientology as legitimate, credible religions, um, and they, they, they help. These groups maintain their religious status, their tax-exempt status, and um, the entire argument, as far as I'm concerned, is flawed from the very beginning because a group like Scientology engages in what we call religious cloaking. They pretend they're a religion. They dress up as a religion. They play at, they're basically cosplaying being a religion. And it, to the point that the membership actually believes that it's part of a religion. But, but it's not. It's a con job, right? We have to remember that and keep that in mind. L. Ron Hubbard started a fraudulent, abusive organization for his own self-aggrandizement, and he called it a religion that doesn't mean it's legitimately that. And the analogy that I make is, imagine if you had a group of accountants or economists, okay? Guys who are really steeped in economic theory and or, or business theory, let's say, and they suddenly, as a body, start putting out work talking about the mafia and saying that the mafia really shouldn't be getting such a bad rap. Why are are they being investigated all the time? Why are all these people all over the mafia? The mafia is really just immigrants using old world methodologies and techniques to make their way in the world these days. And what's the problem with that? We should be studying the mafia as a new business methodology or a new business movement. And we should study what they're doing and all the positives of what they're doing. And we shouldn't listen to any of these former mafia members or former made men or former convicts who, who went to jail from their mafia experience and then came out and talked about it. We're going to ignore all of those guys. They're just bitter. They're just mad. They're just angry at the mafia, at the family because they got kicked out. So we don't have to listen to anything they have to say. All we have to listen to is the mafia, Don, and his lieutenants tell us all about what a great group of people they are, how philanthropic they are, how good for the community they are, how helpful they are to the community, how they do favors for people, how they help people out of binds, how they give people loans. Look at all this positive community work that comes out of the mafia. What's the problem? Right? You bigots, you people out there, you racists, you horrible people who are pushing back on the mafia really need to stop. Cuz the mafia is a good group of guys. They're legit. They should have credibility. We should recognize them as a new business model. That's basically how I see these new religious movement scholars as they are basically making that same argument for Scientology, for the Moonies for the Mormons, for the Church of God, right? It said children of God, etc. So so this is this is why I have a problem with what these guys are doing is because they are completely miscategorizing these groups as valid, legit, credible religious activities and they are not at all critical of the bad or dark side that exists. And that's all I really want from them is objective analysis. If you're going to talk about the good, you better talk about the bad. Also, if you're going to claim to be objective, that's what you do. As an academic, that is always what you do. But unfortunately, that is not what's been going on in this field. So I wanted to let all you guys know about that. Like I said, I kind of fumbled my way through this, but I wanted to give you guys some data. This is information that is personally very triggering to me. And I'm just being honest with you, right? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you I am biased. I'm telling you I have, I, I still have, you know, stuff from my Scientology experience. And when I see people who claim to be objective scholars of religion talk about something that I know and lived— for decades of my life, as though they know more about it than I do. And they have the nerve, the gall, the balls to ignore everything I have to say about it, everything everybody has to say about it, except the people they think tell the truth, current members, no less. I mean, you, you you can understand why I might become a little bit of a rage monster over that. It's traumatizing. It's insulting. It's a body of academics who are not being academic. They are betraying the very trust and faith that we put in them when we give them letters after their name. That's those letters are supposed to mean something, and I I I, I take this very very seriously, as you can see. So. Um, I think that the long-term consequences of this have been nothing but destructive for us, trauma survivors and cult survivors and abuse survivors. And I think it's time that this whole line of reasoning end. I think it is time that these, uh, these bad arguments and these bad views and this cult apologist nonsense bury, get buried. and uh, that new arguments and new ideas, Uh, be injected into this field so that truly objective work can be done, where, like I said, we can look at the good and we can look at the bad side by side, and we can get a measured, nuanced view of the Church of Scientology, of the Mormons, of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we can see from an an objective third-party point of view, just, you know, are they destructive? Are they not? I mean, where are we really at with these groups? how would we judge that what kind of metrics can we use what kind of systems of classification can we use maybe some new religious movements are legit how do we de- how do we actually determine that certainly we can no longer rely on the testimony of religious scholars alone to tell us whether a group is legitimate or not they've already proven as i've shown here that they can't be trusted to tell the truth about these groups they have an agenda I have an agenda and I'm telling you, I have an agenda. I am going to push back against people who defend and support human and civil rights abuses. I'm just not going to put up with that. And I don't think anybody else should either. And so, um, so there you go. So that's what I had to say this week. (sighs) Oh, and, uh, First of, like I said, what will probably be many arguments and papers and stuff. I'm going to end up having to write about this. I'm not really sure what my future holds in this regard. This is kind of what I'm thinking about right now. I'm kind of you know looking at how would I do this, what would I do. I have no intent, of course, in the middle of all of this to stop doing anything else I'm doing. I, I very much enjoy talking to you guys as well. Um, but I think in a in a longer term sense. You know, how do I give my life more value and meaning and purpose? And how do how do I do something with my skill set and with the abilities that I have that maybe can be a positive influence on, on society in general and maybe in this, you know, niche of society, maybe... Um, you know, I can be doing something useful or helpful here. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about. So you guys let me know, you know, what you think about all of this, all my rambling here this this week. I'm I'm interested in, in your feedback. Thanks for listening. Thanks for inviting me in your home this week. I really appreciate your viewership. I'll see you next week. Bye bye.